Good morning again. It's always a joy to worship with you, so I enjoy. Thank you, worship team, and thank you, church, for joining together and praising God. Sometimes it's, it may feel difficult to do that because accounts or stories about well-known people who claim the name, of, the name of Christ doing things that are anything but Christian, stories like that seem all too common. And I could go talk about famous examples from the past, but I don't have to do that because, unfortunately, I can talk about things even within the past month or so. A well-known Christian apologist was uh, revealed to have been involved in many examples of sexual harassment and abuse. There was a horrific shooting in Atlanta a few weeks ago where the suspect in custody was a member of a Southern Baptist church. But we don't even have to think about these big things. We can think a little closer to home. This church is familiar with those, unfortunately, with those in leadership who hidden sin has come to light. And perhaps you even know someone who you thought had a relationship with the Lord or was living for the Lord, and they did something that does not seem in line with that profession of faith. When we hear things like this, and they come up, I've noticed that Christians sometimes have a, a response, a, a gut reaction to want to blame shift or, or push that, that person far away from them and convey that they have nothing to do, they're nothing like that person. Say, well, that person who did that thing, they weren't really a Christian, so we're really not the same. Or say, well, they had this problem, they believed this thing, and I don't believe that, so I'm not the same as them. Or I do this, and they didn't do that, and so we're, we're not really the same. If they had more accountability in their life, then, then this wouldn't have happened. If they would have studied the Bible or read it this way, then they wouldn't have done that thing. So we're, we're not the same. And I understand why we do that, because we know that sin is wrong, and we want to distance ourselves from sin, and that is completely understandable. But when we do that, when we hear something like that, there is a dangerous side to that. It can send us down a path where we keep distancing ourselves from everyone that we disagree with or everyone that we see in any type of sin. And if we keep doing that, we'll end up distancing ourselves from everyone and we'll find ourselves alone. In Scripture, we're going to see a different response in God's people. God's people, when they find sin in their midst, they're not condemning, they don't push away, but instead they mourn, they confess sin, and they repent. They realize that the greatest problem that they face is not some issue that you are doing or not some issue I'm doing, but how we are sinning, the problem among us. Because God looks at his people as a community. The church is a community of God's people, and God's people are not meant to be alone. We are meant to be with other believers. But what that means is that when we become a Christian, if you become a Christian, and then you rightly, as God says, you unite with his people, you join, you associate with a church, then your sin no longer just affects you, and instead affects everyone. It impacts others. The biggest problem that we have is our sinful hearts. And that's what I'm referring to the title. Not your sinful heart, not my sinful heart, but ours. Our sinful heart, our sin. And we're going to see that in our passage today. 
If you remember what we're doing, we are studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, where God's people, the Israelites, have been in exile. They've been removed from the promised land because of their sin, but now they've come back to the promised land. And we've talked about how this didn't happen all at once. It wasn't they were all back at one time, but they came back in groups, in stages. And we're talking about the second group of people to come back. And they were led by a man named Ezra, who was a scribe who knew God's word. He'd been given a letter from the Persian king who ruled over where God's people were and over the promised land. And the king said, you can go back. You can have money to repair the temple. I want you to practice worship that honors your God. And so Ezra and a group of people, they start on this journey back. But today we're going to find out that when they get there, they'll discover something terrible. So let's read that passage and let's see how God's people respond when they discover sin. If uh, you're not there already, please turn to the book of Ezra chapter 9. And then because this is mostly one prayer and I didn't want to interrupt it, I'd like us to read this passage. So if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as I read this passage. Or you can look on the screen. Reading Ezra chapter 9, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So the people are back. Verse 1 says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra speaking, and they said, the people of Israel and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. In verse 3, Ezra says, As soon as I heard this, I, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, our sins have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes, grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, 
Oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land. Leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. In verse 13, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Lord, it is so difficult to know how to respond to sin because we know that sin grieves you. It's rebellion against you. It's faithlessness toward you. God, when we learn of sin, I pray you'd lead us to respond as your people do. May we mourn it. May we confess our sin. May we repent and turn from it for your glory. I pray, God, as we read this, we will realize just how sinful and fallen from you we are, but how wonderful and how above sin and how perfect you are. May we appreciate, worship anew your Son, who lived that perfect life, who deserves all honor and glory, yet he's the one who died to save us. So Lord, I pray that you and your son, that you would increase in our affection and praise today. And I pray that as we think on our sin, we would decrease so that we may bring you honor and glory with our lives. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we've read through the whole passage, and let's try to wrap our head around it. Before we talk about how God's people respond to sin, let's talk about what's happening here. The problem that's happening in this situation is that there are Israelites who are demonstrating faithlessness, faithlessness. If you're using the outline that you found online or that uh, you picked up when you came in, the first blank is faithlessness. The problem is that God's people have not separated from the abominable and the despicable practices of the people around them. And the holy seed or race has mingled, mixed with sin. Now, you may read that and you say, it seems the problem, Pastor John, is that they're marrying the wrong people. There's some wrong intermarriage going on. And yes, that's on the surface, but the real issue is that the people are demonstrating faithlessness. And Ezra explains this. When he's praying, we, we read this just a few moments ago, verses 10 through 12, say, oh, and now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, what God had said, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. And here he summarizes what the prophets said and what the Old Testament law said. 
It said, the land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land. Leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." So what Ezra's doing is he's summarizing what was found in the Old Testament law and warning the people about their unfaithfulness. He's probably thinking of passages like Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, where Moses, speaking on behalf of God, said, you shall not intermarry with them, the people in the land, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here he tells us why he says that. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. By marrying with people who didn't worship God, it would destroy the unique identity of God's people. This is not an issue of their race. It's not that they were in a different ethnic group. It was that they were worshiping another God, and God's people were supposed to be faithful to him. So this was the warning Moses gave, and unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Psalm 106 tells us that they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They mixed with the nations, and exactly like Moses said, they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare and a trap for them. By mixing with these other nations, they demonstrated their faithlessness, and that's what led to the exile of God's people from the promised land in the first place. And now they've come back, but Ezra discovers they're still just as faithless. They're acting as if they did not have faith in God. They're acting without trust in him. They're doing the very opposite of what he commanded in his word. Because the way of God is not the way of those around God's people, the way of the world. It's not the holy, separate, distinct life that he desires for his people. If we are God's people, we will live differently And that impacts decisions we make. That will impact decisions like who we marry. And our faithfulness to God will impact the future of our community and its witness to the world. This idea of partnering or marrying someone who doesn't know or worship God, it it pops up in the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? I was given an article from Kathy Keller. She's Pastor Tim Keller's pastor in New York, uh, his wife. And she was speaking of the danger and the results that happen when a believer marries an unbeliever. And she says, for the believer, there could only be three results. I'm summarizing her. She says that either for the believer, Christ is pushed to the margins of their life. They worship Christ less. Or their spouse is pushed to the margins of their life. They're unable to love their spouse well. Or... There's stress in the marriage that causes it to break up, or it's stress that leads to seasons of loneliness. These are the results that happen. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this issue of uh, believers marrying unbelievers right now this week. I really want to get to that the next time we're in Ezra, probably two weeks from now. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the implications of that for our lives today and what we should do if... uh, we or someone we know is in that situation. And so I want to talk about those things 
next time we're in Ezra. I think chapter 10 uh, will help us think through that. But for today, let's talk about what's happening here. It's four months after Ezra and his group get back in the promised land, and they discover that the people who are already there were marrying people who worship other gods. And they find out that all classes of Israelites are involved in this. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites have done this. And they even say the leaders have, have done this. The end of verse 2, in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been the foremost. They're doing it openly, proudly, defying what God has said. It seems that in the time between their first return to the promised land and this one, something horrible has happened. If you remember uh, when we were talking earlier in the book of Ezra, God's people, their greatest problem was those outside of God's people. It was these other authorities, other people who weren't a part of God's people saying, hey, you need to stop rebuilding the temple. And they really struggled with that, that problem happening outside. But now it seems some hearts have changed. And the problem now is inside God's people. Their commitment to the Lord had slipped. This is a problem now Ezra's going to have to deal with, and later Nehemiah will have to deal with it too. In many ways, it's a bigger problem than that outside opposition. Because this faithlessness, this unfaithfulness, is a breach of faith before God. It's breaking faith with Him. And in the Bible, breaking faith with God has serious consequences earlier in the Old Testament, talks about the first king of Israel, King Saul in 1 Chronicles. It says he died for his breach of faith. It's the same word for his unfaithfulness. He broke faith with the Lord. He did not keep the command of the Lord. He also consulted a medium seeking guidance and did not seek guidance from the Lord. And the result is, therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to someone else, to David, the son of Jesse. Here, in Ezra, the result they see is that the holy seed is polluted. God's people are not being faithful to him. And again, I want to talk more about this next week, but it's not an issue of that these are people are different ethnicity. That's not what it's about. It's that they're not worshiping God. We talked earlier in the book of Ezra when they celebrated the Passover. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile, but also everyone who had joined them, who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. It wasn't about race, it was about their faithfulness to God. And these people were marrying those who were worshiping other gods, and they would lead the Israelites to do the same. About the only positive thing happening in this situation is that Ezra doesn't discover this himself. The leaders, the people in the land, bring it to him. The officials tell him this is happening. They know that it is wrong. And the way they quote these nations that the peoples are marrying with is very similar to the list in the Old Testament law. It seems that their sin has been exposed by God's word. That's why Ezra's there. He's going to preach. He's going to tell them what God's law says. And it seems they've heard this and the, their sin has convicted them. And so they're confessing it to Ezra. Ezra's teaching and people are responding. It's probably not the way he imagined or wanted people to respond. He thought they would get passionate about rebuilding the temple, but instead they're all confessing sin. But the Bible does that. It exposes our sin. And when we realize that God's word has said something is wrong, if we continue to indulge in what God has condemned, then we're sinning and rebelling against him, showing that faithlessness. So this is the problem, the situation that they're in. Now let's look at how Ezra and the people respond to this sin. 
And I think it's lessons for us about how God's people respond to sin. The first response that Ezra has is to mourn, is to mourn. That, that's that first blank. Ezra and the people of the land, they mourn for this sin. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 again. Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And then he prays the prayer that we read. Here we see Ezra showing mourning's his, the sin. He's lamenting, he's grieving, and he has these extreme acts of mourning, extreme grief. What he says he does is he tears both his cloak and his garment. At that time, most people would wear a, a heavy o- over cloak and then some type of shirt, garnet, garment, or tunic underneath. And when someone was upset, they would tear their clothes. And it wasn't like nowadays where you could go over to the store and buy a new shirt. This was maybe the only two items of clothes you had. It was a big deal to tear them because then you'd need some new ones. And so if somebody was showing grief, they might tear one of those things to symbolize that grief. But Ezra is so upset, he tears both of the articles of clothing that he has. He's overwhelmed with grief. The Israelites are being led to worship idols, non-gods that cannot save the people. And Ezra knows that their sin earns God's judgment. He doesn't want that to happen to his people. He doesn't want to see God judge them. What they're doing, rejecting God like this, it's as if they've turned down the clean water that God offers so they can drink in a porta potty. It's terrible. It's, a, it's an image that disgusts him and leads him to grief. Others in the Old Testament would respond the same way. Another king, when he hears about God's word and his sin, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. It's a common response of grief. Ezra has seen this because the people have now compromised their new freedom. They were in exile for years, and now they're finally free to come back, but they're returning to their sin. And Ezra's not the only one who sees this. Other people recognize that this is sinful, and they join Ezra in his mourning in verse 4. And there's this great phrase to describe these people. It says, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. That's a great description for those who worship God because they are faithful to him. They seek him and they seek his word. They are eager to obey him. Other places in the Old Testament use this phrase. The book of Isaiah, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I think that's the challenge to us. When we read God's word, do we take it seriously? Do we tremble at it? Say, wow, this is God speaking to us. Or do we take it lightly? And is it easy to dismiss it? Maybe you're hearing this, and we didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, but maybe you hear this issue about people, some people marrying those who do not know God, and you say, really, Pastor John, what's, what's the big deal about it? I know God said it was wrong, but really, what's the big deal? That may be treating God's word lightly, but I think it's the same if you read that and say, well, shame on them for doing that. They shouldn't do that. I know better 
than that, I think that's also not really trembling at God's word. Because Ezra feels differently. He shows compassion to these people. He cares for them. But more than that, he fears and worships God. He loves God and has an affection for him. And that leads him to this grief. And after he spends all day, he's not eating, but he's just in this position of grief, he then calls out to God. He was modeling the humility that they should have had before God. And then he pleads with God to intervene. He trusts God to act in this situation. He takes a position of humility. It says he gets down on his knees and raises his hands to heaven. And this example drew people to him. And they saw, yes, maybe we should come back to God. This is the attitude we need. Now what Ezra's doing, he's not blaming himself for their sin, but he could still mourn and lament what was happening. I think it's pretty convicting how Ezra responds. If Ezra responds this way to one sin that he sees, how do we respond when we see sin around us, when we see sin in the church? And if that's a little too outside you, bring it home to yourself. How do you respond when you sin? Do you respond this way with this type of horror and humility and calling out to God like Ezra does? Or do we brush it aside? Do we downplay our sin? Are we content to just condemn sin in others and not look at ourselves? Or do we follow what God's Word is demonstrating here? Do we mourn sin? And if we were not mourning sin we see, then I think that says something about how we view sin and how we view the holiness of God. I think it's saying that we don't view sin the way God does. We don't view it as rebellion against Him. We view it as a little mistake we made over here instead of an offense to a holy God. Now, I'm not telling you that you literally have to pull your hair out and tear your clothes every time you hear about a sin. But I think we've gone too far in the other extreme. We rush very quickly when we hear about sin. We, we rush to anger, to judgment. We want answers and action and change to happen. But in Scripture, God's people take time to mourn. And then after they mourn, God's people respond to sin by confessing it. They mourn, and then they confess sin. They confess. Let's read part of Ezra's prayer. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 9. Ezra says, Oh my God, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, we have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. And then in verse 8, he says, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes, grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And then I don't have it up here, but the very beginning of verse 10 says, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? 
for we have forsaken your commandments. So when he's mourning sin, he's showing actions of lament and mourning, but now he's expressing it in his words and his prayer. He confesses the past sin of their ancestors, their fathers. Ezra is ashamed. He blushes with disgrace. He uses language that we find in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 38 says, my iniquities, my sins have gone over my head like a heavy burden. It reminded me of the the Greek demigod Atlas carrying the globe on his shoulder. It's a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Ezra is overwhelmed with his people's sin, the devastating, humiliating results that come. In those verses, he repeats multiple times iniquity or sin, and he repeats the word guilt over and over again for emphasis. He's saying God's people have great guilt. They are steeped in sin. But I I want us to think about this very carefully because Ezra is saying this of everyone, but Ezra wasn't doing this. He hadn't committed this sin, but his response is still, we have sinned before God. He identified with his people. He did not exalt himself over them, but said, yes, we have sinned. And he's right about what the results of that were. When God's people sinned in the past, the book of Kings tells us the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them, gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And then Ezra's moved to remember what's happening right now. He's remembering that God's grace, he's showing them in the present time. He's given them security, a firm place, a firm hold in the promised land. It's, it's almost though kind of funny because he says in verse eight, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord. God's people had been in the promised land for about 100 years, but Ezra, seeing through God's eyes, realized that 100 years in God's sight truly is a brief moment. And in many ways, that's a refreshing view of history. He's realizing that life and God's purposes, human existence, have gone on long before us, and unless Christ returns, will continue a long time after we are gone. And sin is serious because God has an eternal perspective but he's also in control. And in that, Ezra has hope because he's left the people, a small remnant, a few are left. But he knows this remnant needs to remain pure. They need to separate themselves from sin. And they have not done that. Pursuing sin is not the way to be pure before God. And he's thankful for the generosity that the kings, the emperors at the time, the Persians had shown him. He's thankful for that, but at the same time, he and God's people know that they are still slaves. They can't make all decisions for themselves. They long for greater, which they're throwing away by pursuing this sin. God has given them protection for his people. And so in this, Ezra's shifting his focus from the people's sin to God's faithfulness, because even in our sin, God shows us faithfulness, steadfast love, mercy, and grace. We read before 10 through 12, he talks about how they've explicitly broken the command that God has given. They've forsaken God's commands. God revealed what he wanted, and they refused to obey. They abandoned what he said. You can feel Ezra's brokenness, his shame, his anguish in this prayer. Again, it seems to echo the language of the psalm. Psalm 106 says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Ezra's response here, 
how he looks at sin. I think it really challenges how, how we typically respond to sin. Because let's really think about it from Ezra's perspective, the perspective of the people of the day. If we take a step back and look at this, what's going on, some could argue, it's really not that huge of a problem. If we go on to chapter 10 and we look, there's actually a list of everyone who had committed this sin. And you know what? It's, it's only about 110, maybe 111 people. There are well over 50,000 people among God's people. That was in the first group, and a couple thousand more came now. This is a small fraction of God's people who have done this. Yet, Ezra sees how serious this sin is, and he still acknowledges the guilt of all of God's people. It's just 110, but he says, we have sinned. And remember, Ezra literally just showed up in Israel. He had not been there at all in his entire life. He just got there with these people. This issue, this problem is not his fault at all. He did nothing wrong. And yet when he gets there, he doesn't say to them, y'all done messed up. No, what he says is, we have sinned. He takes ownership of his spiritual family's sin before God. And he's not the only one in Scripture to do this. The prophet Daniel would respond much the same way to sin. Daniel was one who was faithful to God, but when he prays to God, look at this similar language. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God. I made confession. I said, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. And then he uses similar emotional language like Ezra does just a couple verses later. He says, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. I read an article recently from a a pastor named Jeff Peabody in Christianity Today, and he's specifically talking about Daniel, but I think his words apply to what Ezra's saying as well. And he said, instead of recoiling from the wickedness that he sees around him, he places himself squarely in the middle of other people's sin in addition to his own. There is no daylight between his personal failings and those of the larger community. He identifies with it. And I think if we are committed to following after God, then we should be able to pray Daniel's prayer or Ezra's prayer in this passage when we see sin. And if we're not able to pray that, then I think we're misunderstanding the Christian faith. Yes, we all have personal responsibility and accountability before God, but a community that allows sin to flourish needs to return to a right relationship with the Lord. And you say, this this is kind of difficult for me to grasp or wrap my head around, Pastor John. Well, uh, let me try to give an example. Um, maybe you are a fan of sports. If you're not, I'm sorry that you might not be able to follow this analogy, but if you are a fan of sports, then you understand what it is to take ownership of someone else's actions. Because if you're a sports fan, then you take ownership of when your team succeeds and when your team loses and fails. You're not on the field. You didn't contribute to them. But still, if your team loses, you're like, oh, we didn't play well today. And if they win, you're like, did you see how awesome we went today? Oh, man, we, we, we fell short at the end. We, we couldn't go full four quarters. You, you had nothing to do with that, but you still take ownership of 
that failure. Well, to extend that analogy, the church is Jesus's team. And if you are a genuine Christian, then you are on his team. And the successes and failures of that team belong to you too. Now, I have good news for you because if you're on that team, the good news is we're going to win the game. But on the other hand, it's not because of anything that we're doing individually. It's not something we're doing. In sports, they sometimes say if one player is is the one who's really doing the work, they say he's carrying the team. Well, friends, Jesus Christ is carrying this team. It's not something that we're doing. But that also means that he is God, and he's able to handle our sin. We don't need to hide it or brush it aside or paint in the corner, pretend like it never happened. We can give it to him because he can handle that. And if we understand that taking ownership of a sports team's failures, then why are we unwilling to do that in real life and in our church? And I think the only reason is really our own pride, our own position before God. And not doing that, I think that makes us similar to somebody Jesus talks about in Luke 18, a Pharisee who stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's praying next to me, because I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The opposite of that is that tax collector who stands far off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brothers and sisters, we are a church family, and that means your spiritual successes are mine, and your spiritual failures are mine too, and vice versa. Our call is to respond like this tax collector to our sin and the sin of those who claim the name of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. God's Word tells us that we are to act on sin as well. And if there's sin in the church, the Bible gives us instructions on that. It gives us the process of church discipline, confronting someone in sin, bringing it to others, and then the church may have to act and say, this person is not a part of our fellowship. If there's sin in church leadership, that person should be removed from church leadership. If someone has broken the law, the authority should be contacted. The state has been given the authority to punish, to enact justice according to the law. These things should happen. But when sin happens in God's people, we should also mourn. We should beware our tendency to push sin away from us, to pretend like it didn't happen or that it has nothing to do with us. I'm nothing like that person. There may be implications for this and how we think about larger issues in the country, but our text focuses on God's people. And so for us, that's the church. So let's focus there. When someone sins, we have questions. And we wonder, was that person, were they a genuine believer at all? Their actions are evidence otherwise, but the truth is we can't know on this side of heaven. All we can know is that they claim to follow Jesus, and that's something we have to deal with. We can't ignore it or brush it aside. We should respond as Ezra does and mourn and confess. I know it's hard to do this. It, it runs across our Western American individual uh, kind of culture we have where I take care of me and you take care of you, and then we're all good. If we're going to do this, we need to think about how our Savior Jesus approaches our sin. Again, Pastor Peabody said, taking responsibility for our own sin, that's painful enough. 
The thought of our attaching ourselves to sins we can't stand sickens us, and it should. But that very revulsion can be useful because it gives us a tiny glimpse of the horror Christ endured on our behalf. Because what Christ did was absolute holiness joined itself to us in our utter depravity. This is the good news of the gospel. A holy, perfect, righteous God associated himself with us and our sin. He took it and then he paid for it. The filth, the garbage, the wickedness of what we did against God, we do not suffer for. We do not receive punishment for. Jesus took that for us. Christ died for our sins no matter how terrible. And that gives us the freedom to bring our sin, confess it to him. And when we confess, then we can respond by turning and repenting from it. Verses 13 through 15, Ezra says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. For this week, we're just going to look at one side of this repentance, this turning away from sin, confessing our unworthiness to receive God's mercy. And that's what we see here. Ezra says, God's righteousness leads to judgment for his people unless God himself would intervene. He says, God has done less to us than our sin deserves. We deserve to be removed from the promised land again, but we are still here. That's what repentance, turning from sin involves. It involves recognizing we do not deserve how God has treated us. It's a response of humility, not a response of entitlement. I'm entitled to the grace God has shown me. No, I don't deserve what God has done for me. Again, we see this truth in the Psalms. It says of God, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Because if he did, we would have all been dead a long, long time ago. Ezra is saying to God, God, you have punished us as we deserve by removing us from the land, and now you're punishing us less than we deserve. You are showing us grace, but we are continuing to sin. How can there be hope for us? Because God's grace should result in obedience, in change. We should not use his blessings as an opportunity to sin. If it doesn't result in change, then God is free to judge. As Ezra says, God is just. He is righteous. He would be just and right in bringing judgment on the Israelites. He determines what is right and wrong. He judges sin. He must punish sin. It's his character. In the book of Nehemiah, the people recognize this again. They said, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And so Ezra gives no excuse. If it was me and I was praying this prayer, I would have said, God, these other people have messed up so bad. 
It is ruining our witness to the world, and judgment could come upon us. And God, I didn't do anything wrong. These other people with me didn't do anything wrong. It's just these 110 people, so you, you do what you need to do to them. But God, I can't believe they've done this wrong to us. But that, that's not his response. He doesn't say they've done wrong. He says, we are before you in our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. He doesn't give excuses. He's understood that true repentance, true turning away from sin is throwing ourselves on God's mercy. It leaves no room for yeah, buts. It's, well, yeah, those people sin wrong, but I don't sin as bad as they do. And yeah, I made a mistake here, but I've done this other thing for God. There's no room for that in biblical repentance. This is a plea for mercy. No one can stand before a holy God. This is where our text ends, and that ends on kind of a, a downbeat, but the truth is, in that moment, is when we can freshly discover God's grace. As we read earlier, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark, should count, should hold us accountable for our iniquities and sins, then who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, that you, God, may be feared and worshipped. So when we hear of sin that a Christian's committing, or particularly, I would say, in our own local church, do we respond like this? Do we respond in this way by mourning, confessing, repenting? There's nothing wrong with feeling other emotions. Emotions, feelings, these are things that pop up. If you hear about sin, we feel anger or sadness. Yes, that's it's understandable to feel that. And yes, there are consequences for sin. I'm not denying that at all. And no, I'm not saying you are responsible for someone else's sin, but we're still called to mourn sin in our church, in the church, to confess it, to repent and turn away from it. We're to ask God to change us. This week, I was reading a book of uh, prayers from Christians in the past called the Valley of Vision, and this one prayer struck me. It says, subdue in me the love of sin. Let me know the need of renovation as well as of forgiveness in order to serve and enjoy thee, enjoy you, God, forever. And this type of prayer, this type of action we read here, it is possible through Jesus Christ. I have one last quote from that Pastor Jeff Peabody. He said, I myself can glorify him best when I choose humble ownership of sin. Mine and the Christian communities, when I choose that ownership over separation and contempt. And that is where I begin to better see and love Christ, the sinless one who owned my sin and continues to stand with me despite all of my ongoing forms of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, friends who are here or who are watching, the truth is that none of us can stand before God in our own work. We have no room for pride in our performance. We all need God's grace. And this day is Palm Sunday where we remember and celebrate our King coming in to Jerusalem. And we need to remember that our King is the only hope that we have for the forgiveness of sins. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And he acknowledges how ridiculous this is because one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know this king who died for you? I don't know with each and every person here or you watching, I, I don't know what sin and wrong you've done against God. But I do know that Jesus can pay for it. If we come to know him, if we turn away from sin, if we embrace a relationship with him, if we mourn, confess, repent of our sin and seek him, we can know that forgiveness, know Jesus who took ownership of our sin and paid for it, went to the cross. And if you do know Jesus, then let me ask you, will you commit to respond the way that Ezra and the Israelites did to sin? Will you mourn, confess, and repent? I pray that we would do that together when we encounter sin, because we are a church family, and the Lord is worthy of that kind of response. This is the moment where we respond in worship, so maybe this is a time where you want to worship God for the grace and goodness that he has shown you. But maybe this is a time that you want to respond in prayer, maybe calling on God to, to save you, to draw himself to you. Or maybe you need to pray for sin in your own life or for sin in the life of someone you know, responding the way God's people do, mourn, confess, and repent. I pray you'll use this time as God leads.